Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my musically sheltered friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we discuss principal components analysis, what it is, what it absolutely isn't-ish, and what kinds of cool things it can do in its own right. Along the way, we also mention Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, The Division Symbol, Spider Pig, Croissants and Skewers, Doing a Nickel in the Big House, Jumping the Starter Solenoid, Ptolemy the Weenie, Two Fingers of Whiskey, Embracing the Butt, The Sexual Lubricant Database, Stylometry, Bitcoin Forensics, and Bad Yelp Reviews. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you have come to realize something that everyone else already realizes, but you come to it much later than you probably should have? Do you mean statistically or just in life? Just life in general, <laughs> that you lean back and say, oh, wow, yeah, I really should have seen that earlier. <laughs> this has happened to me way more often than it should. I love music. I love listening to music. I love playing music. I try my hand at composing music, and it's mm -hmm. absolutely horrible, but <laughs> I love all aspects of it. And when my kids were young, I wanted to introduce that early on. I found this wonderful book, and they had these classic kids' songs, mm -hmm. and they had the written music for each song, and then you could play it on the piano. And there's Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. The kids are on each side of me, and we're snuggled up on the couch, <laughs> and I point with one finger to the concert C that's written in the music staff, and then I point on the keyboard where the C goes, mm -hmm. and then we sing it along as my finger moves down. <laughs> and it's like, you know, twinkle, twinkle, and we go down. I'm not going to sing it because I can't. <laughs> that's why I play a wind instrument. Then we turn the page. I'm like, let's do another one. Now, keep in mind, I'm 42 years old. <laughs> the next song is A, B, C, D, E, and I'm going, do you see this? And about the second measure, I freeze. And I'm like, son of a <laughs> and I flip back and forward, and I flip back and forward, and I yell down the hall and said, Andrea, did you know Twinkle Twinkle and ABC are the same song? And she walks into the room and just looks at me and turns around and walks out. <laughs> so that was one wow. example huh. at 42 years of age of saying, wow. I have some bad news for you. Can you sing for me, Ba Ba Black Sheep? Are you shitting me? <laughs> Go ahead. Ba Ba Black C Sheep have e F G H I. <laughs> you were today years old when you learned that. <laughs> Six years old. I'm, I'm sorry to have to tell you that. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my side hurts. Okay. Well, there you go. I was trying to think of something that I was an adult and figured out. You know the division sign. I do know the division symbol. <laughs> You're familiar with it. <laughs> do you know what that symbol represents? Division. Very nice. <laughs> I only learned recently that it's a fraction where there's a dot above, which <gasps> represents a numerator, and a dot below, which I represents... I didn't know that! 
I thought it was just some random symbol that someone came up with. But it's a fraction. How cool is that? I had no idea. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> this is already a big day for you. I don't want to try to outdo your epiphany, but I think there's <laughs> one that will give it a good run for its money. All right. We like going out as a family to see movies, and we went and saw the Spider-Man movie. Oh, yeah. We went out for dinner afterwards. There's a little taco bar that's connected to the movie theater, and we went there, and we like doing that and then talking about the movie. It's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Now, a little background... I'm a huge Simpsons fan. <laughs> There's a Simpsons movie. I can't believe we're paying. It's something we get on TV for free. In it, they have Spider Pig. <laughs> now, I don't know if any of you have seen the Simpsons movie. If not, shame on you. You should go see it. It is hilarious. Mm -hmm. But Homer gets a pig and he calls it Spider Pig. <laughs> and he sings a song. Spider Pig, Spider Pig, <laughs> does whatever a Spider Pig does. Can he swing on a web? No, he can't. He's a pig. Spider pig, spider pig, does whatever a spider pig does. <laughs> All right, now these two come together as we're at the taco bar, and I start talking about how one thing I loved is how the Spider-Man movie, they tipped their hat to The Simpsons by using the same song <laughs> phrase in the sequence. And I was like, that is such a trip. You know, these guys must have grown up with that. It's like this kind of respect thing and all of that. As so I said, I just, that was my favorite part of the whole movie. <laughs> and all three of them just stared at me. And I was like, no, it, it was, it's like, remember, it was like spider pig spider. Oh, yeah, I see that now. Mm. That makes more sense. <laughs> okay. That's a lot of personal disclosure in this episode. Oh, now I can't get out of my head, spider pig, spider pig. No, we can't. He's a pig. <laughs> Why I bring this up? Oh, God, there's a reason. There is okay. a reason. <laughs> One of the things that I learned much later in life mm -hmm. is that principal components analysis is not a factor analysis model. Mm. I learned it in a class. I wrote it down on an exam. I parroted it back when asked. Mm -hmm. ah, PCA is not FA. PCA <laughs> is not FA. I'm fully capable of doing that. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until much later that I understood at a deeper level why PCA is not a factor analysis model and what the implications are of that. Absolutely. I think a factor analysis is this big bucket with lots of different methods in it. And we often throw principal components analysis in there, but it's not exactly the same thing. If you have a really good friend who is a factor analyst and just want to jerk their chain, <laughs> repeatedly refer to principal components analysis <laughs> as a common factor model. Step one, get a better class of friends. <laughs> step, step two, okay, go ahead and do this. All right, if you're listening to this, that ship has already sailed. 
<laughs> so where do we start? We don't want to make it a factor analysis lecture. We already had an episode. It was episode 22, season one. Wow. Look at you. No, the only reason I remember that was because I made the logo be dot 22. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly of factor analysis. If you want a deeper dive into exploratory factor analysis and confirmatory factor analysis, we talk a lot about that in there. We should set up, at least in principle, why a PCA is not a member of the common factor model. And then I would like to focus a bit more on the PCA because I have a dual view on this. I embrace that PCA is not a factor analysis. Mm -hmm. That said, PCA is one of my favorite analytic methods in everything we do. Yep. It is magical. It is cool. It is bulletproof. <laughs> if you have one more person than number of variables, you can do a principal components analysis. I enter into thinking about PCA and thinking about composites. Mm -hmm. So everybody who's listening, every single one of you has a set of items that you want to do something with, right? Whether this is in your own work or your collaborator or even it's a thought experiment. A good example that we've used in different settings is depression. Mm -hmm. And let's just say you have 10 items. You can take a mean of the items. So what do you do? You add them all up and divide by 10. Well, that's a composite. And it is what is sometimes called an unweighted composite, right? There's mm -hmm. an implicit one in front of each item. So it's one times item one plus one times item two, and then you divide by 10. And if you have 10 items, there is one composite and you're done. The cornerstone of principal components analysis, and this comes out of the amazing head of hoteling, and we mm -hmm. talked about him over summer in the history discussion. Yeah. Hoteling was actually here at Carolina. Yes. In the 30s, hoteling kind of shrugged and said, okay, I'm going to warp your mind from a single set of items. We can get different composites where we start weighting the items differently. Mm -hmm. So we're going to weight your 10 items in a particular way. We're not going to use ones anymore. We're going to use some values other than ones. And we're going to upweight some items and downweight others, and we're going to get one composite. But given that we didn't use ones for all the items, we're going to make another pass through it. And we're going to make a second composite where we upweight different items and downweight different items. And we're going to get that composite. We're going to get a third and a fourth and a fifth. You can get as many composites as there are items. Mm -hmm. If you have 10 items, you can get up to 10 composites. But why on earth would you do that? Because all you've done is traded 10 items for 10 composites. So then the fun becomes, can we take that 10 dimensional matrix and reduce it to a smaller number of composites that is good enough for government work? And there's so many things that we can do with those composites. Should we do the differentiation between this and factor analysis to make it crystal clear before we dive into the composite world? Give a tight two minutes on open mic night on <laughs> why is PCA not a member of the common factor model? Okay. <laughs> All right. So the, the common factor model assumes that there's a dimension or multiple dimensions that influence a set of variables. In other words, those variables themselves could be written as a function of of those factors that they have in common. A component model instead creates out of the variables a composite. So in a common factor model, the variables themselves are believed to be a typically linear function of these underlying common factors. 
in a component model, the variables themselves are composited to form what we sometimes call a principal component or other composites. All of the general linear model revolves around forming composites of our variables. In those cases, we are forming composites of our variables in service of explaining some external variable. Sometimes people call that a supervised process, where you're making a recipe of your x's to try to explain some y out there. But in a component model, as we're talking about today, you are making a composite of the x's without any supervision, without any external criterion. You're building a composite for the purpose of representing those variables. So how can we build composites out of x's that maximally represent the x's? They're not trying to reflect some underlying latent thing that's driving the variables. It may do that or it may not. So in the end, the differentiation is in a common factor model, the variables are viewed as functions of the underlying latent factors, whereas in a composite model, the composites themselves are functions of the measured variables. Nicely done. I, I don't know. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there, and a concept that's related to this and that I often glom onto myself is that notion of indeterminacy. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't want to get into a rabbit warren on that. Indeterminacy is, colloquially at least, can you obtain a closed-form estimate of the latent score based on the items that you observed? Mm -hmm. So in the common factor model that Greg describes, given the common factor, you have things called a uniqueness, which is what part of the item is left over after removing the effects of the common factor model. We believe these true factor scores to exist. So if we have 10 items and 100 people, we believe there's a distribution of true scores on this latent factor, mm -hmm. but we cannot obtain an exact estimate of what those scores are given particular features of the model. Mm -hmm. Now, we can estimate those. They're regression-based scores, they're Bartlett scores, they're constrained covariance scores. There's a whole literature on factor score estimates, but they're all just estimates. In contrast, in a PCA, you do get a closed-form expression of the score on the component. Mm -hmm. It is calculated as a direct function of your weights and your items. To me, I think that's a really important distinction. Even in my own teaching, I find myself getting careless in talking about principal components and using the word factor. And you just have to be very careful. In the principal components, you're talking about a direct weighted combination of your set of items. But in a common factor model, you are not. You're hypothesizing the existence of this latent variable that gives rise to the patterns of correlations you observed in your data but that we're not able to obtain a precise estimate of what that true factor score is. So that's another way of thinking about it. Yeah, they get lumped together so often. And I don't think it's that egregious for the following reason. Yes, on a technical level, and you and I can both be the most annoying people. <laughs> that might as well be edited out because that's a given. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we know the components aren't the same thing as factors. That's fine. Technically, 100%, no question. But there's a reason that principal components analysis has been associated with factor analysis, has been mistaken for common factor analysis. And that's because when you have a really strong underlying latent variable, that induces a very high degree of correlation among a set of items. And when you have a high degree of correlation among a set of items, 
it's very easy to build one very strong component out of them. So what's going on at the underlying latent level and what you can do at a composite level often map onto each other really well. So the fact that there's a technical distinction, eh, component analysis has been a good window into, a dirty window, but a good start at a window into the underlying latent dimension. So I will forgive people. I still might be annoying, but I'll forgive them a little bit. Well, I'm glad because you would forgive me then because I move in and out of that. But why I think it's an important distinction is one, we're all scientists and we should be precise with what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a PCA, there are certain assumptions and characteristics that you're adopting with that approach. If you're doing a common factor model, there are certain assumptions and characteristics that you're doing with that approach. If you go back to the early stuff, Hotelling was writing in the 30s. Thurstone mm -hmm. was writing in the 30s. Spearman was still kicking stuff out in the 30s. Mm -hmm. And one of the earliest papers comparing and contrasting PCA to factor analysis was Thompson, and it was in 1939. Mm -hmm. And so people have been arguing and grousing and throwing things at each other for 90 years. I think a lot of it is a tempest in a teacup. But not all of it. I think that at the periphery, there are differences between these approaches that we need to be respectful of. And one of the big ones for me is more of a principled issue, but then the other is a more practical one. Some recent work by Keith Wideman. Mm -hmm. He is at Cal Riverside, one of the funniest human beings I've ever met. <laughs> he has a 2018 paper in Structural Equation Modeling Keith first lays out a really nice compare and contrast of PCA and factor analysis and then has a very thoughtful working through of these very issues. I will say that there's a whole other world out there besides the social science world. So we are the people who look at principal components analysis often as this redheaded stepchild of factor analysis that isn't really factor analysis and you don't really belong in the club. But there's this whole other world out there that doesn't give two craps about factor analysis that thinks PCA is just the shit because it can do all kinds of incredible things. I think maybe this is where croissants and skewers <laughs> logically arise. Uh -huh. <laughs> Fine, you're going to make me do this. So give a little background on where this comes from. <laughs> Actually, you set it up and then I'll... Well, I think we alluded to it on an earlier episode. Greg and I taught a workshop in spring... We were on Zoom, we're doing just what we're doing now is I had my feet on my desk and Greg is talking, I'm watching him over Zoom, and he starts talking about eigenvalues and eigenvectors. And I think eigenvalues and eigenvectors are the coolest kids at the party. This is an absolutely remarkable set of analytic methods. And Greg was trying to show a visual of how to understand where we would put these primary axes and secondary axes to meet particular criteria that we state. And he rummaged through his kitchen at break and came down with a stale croissant and a set of wood skewers. <laughs> so please. All right. Obviously, podcasting is not a visual medium, so I'm going to have to ask people to close their eyes, chant, whatever it takes you to be able to visualize some things. 
One is the shape of a croissant that is stale to the point where maybe it has flattened quite a bit because we usually think of a croissant as this light, flaky, puffy thing. Imagine that it's been sitting on your counter for 10 days and is completely deflated, so it's very, very flat. Not unlike a Tom Brady football. I only say that for our friend Dan McNeish out there. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine the shape of this. Long and thin in one direction, kind of wide in another direction. And because it's flat, it's really quite thin in the up and down direction that's sitting on top of the counter. Let's think of that as a data set. Now, that's a weird thing to do, but we know when we do scatter plots in two dimensions, each dot represents a score on X1 and X2. Imagine a three-dimensional scatter plot where you're hanging points in space, and each point conveys information about an X1, an X2, and an X3. And after you make such a three-dimensional scatter plot, the shape of it winds up being like a croissant. So you've got information in that croissant. It has a certain amount of length in the X1 direction. It has a certain amount of width in the X2 direction. And it has a certain amount of thickness in the X3 direction. But if you look at the shape and you had to describe it to somebody, you wouldn't use the X1, X2, and X3 dimensions at all to describe that shape. You would probably say, well, it's really long in this direction. And by this direction, you mean that axis that describes, we could call it the major or principal axis that describes the longest dimension of that croissant. So it is at this point in my demonstration when Patrick and I are teaching that I take a shish kebab skewer and very artfully thread it through the length of the croissant. But that doesn't describe all of the variability in this three-dimensional system, but it describes a lot. There's more variability, though. And if you said, where is the next greatest amount of variability? And here's the kicker that has nothing to do with that first amount of variability, that first dimension. And the answer would be something that is perpendicular to that. Well, in three dimensions, you've got an infinite number of potential skewers that are perpendicular to that one that I just threaded through the length of the croissant. They spin around it, right, all at right angles. Well, which one are you going to put in? And the answer would be the one that's perpendicular to that that goes the width of the croissant. So now you have an axis that is really, really long in terms of how the croissant falls along it. You have another axis at a right angle where the width is not quite as much. And now I could say, is there any more variability in this croissant? In other words, is there any more variability in these points in three dimensions? Well, it kind of depends on how long it's been sitting on your counter, right? How flat is this thing? The answer is yes, there is a little bit more variability that is different from the variability in the first dimension and the second dimension. And we all would know where to put that particular skewer. We would thread it right through the center, perpendicular to the first really, really long axis, perpendicular to the second wide but not as long axis and it goes directly through that thinnest part of the croissant and a quarter of an inch deep into the palm of your hand (laughs) drawing blood while lecturing online (laughs) to people all around the world in five days of lecturing I don't know how it reflects on me, but that was one of the highlights of teaching with you, (laughs) watching you try to continue to talk about (laughs) primary and secondary orthogonal vectors in a multidimensional space and talking about the third eigenvalue while pulling a skewer out of the palm of your hand. So I like that you mentioned the word eigenvalue, though, because all of this works perfectly. If you imagine that your original x's, x1, x2, and x3, had been standardized so that there's one unit of variance on each, 
then we could think about this whole system as having three units of variance in total in x1, x2, and x3. But when I draw a new axis that goes the length of that croissant, that is going to be longer than the variability on x1 or on x2 or on x3. In fact, the variance of the croissant along that particular dimension, that would be the first eigenvalue. One might call it principal component. (laughs) Exactly. Spider pig, spider Spider pig. pig. Does whatever a spider pig does. Um, (laughs) So then the amount of variability in the croissant along that second axis is the eigenvalue there. And then the tiny bit of variability left on the smush croissant that goes in that third dimension is the final eigenvalue. And this is where I'm going to ask you just to pause for a moment and get yourself some tissue. Because if we add the variability along that first component, which is its eigenvalue, the variability along the second component, which is its eigenvalue, the variability along that little tiny squished component, its eigenvalue, they add up to, wait for it, they add up to three three units of variance. That's right. The total amount of variance in the principal components is exactly the same as the amount of variance we started out with. (laughs) Those three units of variance on the original X1, X2, and X3 have now been redistributed onto the first component, which is doing the lion's share of the work, the second component, which is doing some work, and the third component, which is a complete freeloader that seems relatively useless. And what Leona Aiken would call drips and drabs. Drips and drabs. I love that. Is It's like cleaning up after the party. And so what it means here is that in this croissant that is squished and flat and which in no way would stop me from eating it, just to be clear, <laughs> what that means is that although this is a three-dimensional object, the vast majority of the information about it is conveyed in fewer than three dimensions. And that is really the start of the beauty of principal component analysis. A, it's explaining in some optimal way the variability from the greatest amount of variability all the way down to the drips and drabs. But then at some point you're deciding which drips and drabs you don't need to be able to capture the bulk of the information. And so what we have in this beautiful principal component system is what we refer to as a data reduction tool. And it is just gorgeous in its own right. It is gorgeous. I mean, it is literally an elegant, beautiful thing when you look at these. Because the eigenvalue, as Greg described, is the variance of the first composite. But how you get that composite is with each eigenvalue comes an eigenvector. And that vector contains the weights that you would use to create the composite. And the second eigenvalue has its own eigenvector and so on. And there are two properties of these eigenvalues that I really like. Mm -hmm. The first one you already articulated. So if you have your 10 items on depression and you extract all 10 eigenvalues and you add them up, it's going to be 10. And what you're doing is taking the total variability that's available and redistributing it. So instead of item one having a variance of one and item two having a variance of one, the principal component might have an eigenvalue of four, Mm -hmm. where we literally can interpret that as representing 40% of the total variability among your set of items. The second eigenvalue might be one. Well, now it's 10% and on down. 
That I love, Mm -hmm. both in just the analytics, but also in demonstrating what it's happening. We're rearranging, recombining these to achieve some goal that we have. The other one that's a trip, though, is the product of all of your eigenvalues. So multiply them all together. Mm-hmm. It's the determinant of the matrix. All right. So the determinant represents the generalized variance among a set of items. Mm-hmm. We have to have a determinant that's greater than zero to invert the matrix. If we can't, the matrix is not positive definite. Well, how do you get a zero determinant? Well, one or more eigenvalues are zero because the determinant is the product of all of those. What does that mean? Well, if your 10th eigenvalue is zero, there ain't nothing left to combine to get a unique estimate of variance that is orthogonal to the prior nine which means that you have a linearity in your matrix, which means that your matrix is not full rank, which means that you got to fix that problem because you can't proceed with analyses if you have an eigenvalue that's zero. That's right. And when you think about it as generalized variance, the way I think about that anyway is how fuzzy your data are, how poofy they are. And if you think about that croissant On day one, it is a very three-dimensional object. But the flatter and flatter it got over those 10 days, there is less variability overall. And as it gets flatter and flatter, think about it in terms of volume. Ultimately, it has nearly no volume, the flatter that it gets. And the determinant gives us some measure, although we call it generalized variance, It's also related to the volume of the object. And if you flatten that three-dimensional object in any way to get closer and closer to two dimensions or, heck, one dimension, then you've removed its volume. You've removed its variance in the original P dimensions. And you describe that as a problem. I might actually describe that as an opportunity. So nobody takes exception in the battles in the literature about what we just described. This is how you go about doing it. Mm -hmm. Where people start throwing things at each other (laughs) is for what purposes do you use it and what interpretations do you ascribe to that? So no one would ever do a principal components analysis and extract as many components as there are items. Because all you've done is hotwired the car, brought it into the garage, painted it, and brought it back out. The vehicle identification number, it's still printed on the engine block. It's the same car. What we often do, and almost always do, is one of the magical parts of principal components analysis, which Greg already alluded to earlier, which is dimension reduction. What the point is, we want to take a 10 by 10 correlation matrix. Remember the parlor trick, if you're at a party, P times P minus 1 divided by 2 is how many unique correlations are in a P by P correlation matrix. Mm -hmm. So 10 times 9 over 2, you have 45 bivariate correlations in a 10 by 10 correlation matrix. None of us can make sense of 45 bivariate correlations. Mm -hmm. But what if using various strategies that have been used for decades and decades, we decide that our 10 by 10 matrix is optimally characterized by three components. Mm -hmm. Now, first, we're not exactly representing our data because we're saying, yeah, 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 I could get exact representation with 10, 10 doesn't help me, 
but holy cow, I can get most of the way with three, mm -hmm. all right? So one is we're taking a bullet on, we're not exactly representing the data that we observed, but we're getting pretty damn close. So this is one of the hallmarks of principal components is taking a boatload of information and distilling it down to some smaller dimensionality that we can do something with. Yeah. I have two reactions to what you just said. The first is a disturbing number of examples that you do involve flirtation with the law. You don't even have to respond to that. And maybe you would be advised not to respond to that. But I'm pretty sure if I said, did you do a nickel in the big house? I, you would know exactly what that meant. I did not. And for <laughs> those of you who are interested in the movies, they always hotwire the car by mm -hmm. twisting the wires and things. Mm -hmm. It is much more efficient to go into the engine compartment itself and jump the starter solenoid. <laughs> Pro tip here on Quantitude. So that was your first point. Hang on, solenoid. Is it S-O-L-E-N-O-I-D? I think it's E-N. Thank you, solenoid. Thing two is your example of 10 dimensions reducing down to three perfectly reminds me of Thurstone's box problem. Mm. I love this example. Whether or not it's apocryphal or close to apocryphal doesn't really matter. This is a classic problem, and I use this as an analogy for so many things. So let me just tell the story. Imagine Thurstone in his office, which would be an office possibly near you, right? The building is since torn down, but it was just down the street. Just intrinsically, you could walk in that exact space, and it would be right there. And I have the books on my shelf that were on his shelf, the actual books. So yes. Crazy. So imagine Thurstone going around his office with a tape measure and measuring all of the boxes in his office, right? Big boxes, little boxes. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky. All of those boxes, and for each of those boxes, writing down characteristics. But they're not the characteristics that you would ordinarily think to write down for a box. He writes down things like the area of each of the three faces, we'll assume rectangular boxes, the volume of the box, the logarithm of the length of the box, a whole bunch, 10 different measures of the box, but none of them, the measures that you would think to take, right? They're all some kinds of adulterations. And then he throws this into, we'll say, a principal component machine, turns the crank, and guess what comes out? Three dimensions. 10 variables, right? 10 units of variance in the standardized world. And three dimensions come out of it that explain like 98% of the variance in this. And that is what you are describing right there. Now, we understand that all of these boxes at the end of the day exist in three dimensions. I just think that that's a beautiful concrete example of taking all of this information and saying, well, we know in the end of the day, boxes exist in three dimensions. And so it distills down. So why would we need to characterize these boxes with all those seven other dimensions? Exactly. But this is where I start, despite my love of principal components, you have to start being a little careful with this, right? You always have to understand in statistics, in research, in walking into a store, here's this item that you want, but what is the cost of it? So you go into Ikea and you find <laughs> whatever it is that you want. Something for a nice fika, for example. <laughs> you know, you say, this is perfect, but how much does it cost? What is the cost of a principal components model? Well, there are a couple that we really have to pay attention to, and they're related. 
The first is everything that we're doing is based on the correlation matrix. As Greg and I have been talking about, there are ones on the diagonal. So think about every item bringing one unit of variance to the table. Mm -hmm. We are assuming there is no measurement error, that every item is characterized by unit variance and all of that is available for factoring. So there are situations where this is just fine, but you are assuming all observed variability is true variability that is available for factoring. And the second, and it's a related part of this, those weights that we're going to obtain through the eigenvectors, remember each eigenvalue is a single numerical value that represents the variance of that component, and the vector are the weights that you use to create that component. All right, those eigenvectors are not necessarily the weights that we want if we believe a common factor model to exist. Mm -hmm. And this is where I start seeing the difference between principal components and the common factor model. It's kind of like a Ptolemaic versus Copernican universe to me. Ptolemy back in the day had an understandable desire to not be burned at the stake. (laughs) Weenie. What a weenie. I know. (laughs) He placed the Earth at the middle of the Earth system. I can't call it the solar system. It's the Earth system. Uh And everything orbited the Earth. At its very core, the model was wrong. But damned if you couldn't predict the tides with almost exact precision. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Copernicus had less of a druthers to avoid being burned <laughs> at the stake. Prison was fine with him. Is he slapped the sun in the middle and we have the correct model. And you know what's really interesting if you read some of the historical stuff on this mm. is the tide tables were actually a little less precise <laughs> because you now have these elliptical orbits yeah, right. of planets. <laughs> so my point is, if you wake up in the morning and believe your 20 items represent these underlying latent factors of maybe depressed symptomatology and anxious symptomatology, and we bring on all the accoutrement of a common factor model, and we believe that there's measurement error, and we believe that there are these underlying latent factors, then the principal components model is incorrect for that data. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's not useful. But what I feel like is you got to go into the saloon, take a shot of two fingers of whiskey, slam it on the bar, and say, I am applying a components model to what I believe to be a common factor structure. And there's still situations where that's okay, but there are situations where that's not. Yeah, your point is well taken that it's very easy for me to say that PCA covers you for most of your factor analytic needs, even though it isn't factor analysis. And by the way, it has benefits, right? It has benefits when it comes to avoiding Haywood cases and other estimation problems that can occur in more common factor model analytic approaches. But there are situations where what you would get out of a principal component analysis and what you would get out of a common factor model can differ radically. And I think that is important to be aware of, even if it only occurs in certain cases. You're exactly right. Should you use principal components? Should you use principal access factoring? The majority of the time, it does not matter. And I agree with that, but... 
All right. It's not an and, it's mm. a but. I'm going to embrace mm. the but. I agree wow. with that, but uh-huh. here's what I always argue and think about in my own work and in my teaching, which is you have a 20 by 20 correlation matrix that you want to factor, understand the psychometric structure, obtain scores, whatever it is that you want to do. And you have two options in front of you, a principal components analysis or a common factor model. Why not choose the common factor model that corresponds more closely to your underlying theory if that's your motivation? If you want to understand the dimensionality, if you want to understand the psychometric properties, if you want to understand how do these items relate to one factor and these items relate to the other, why would you volitionally choose what you know to be the wrong model? Well, there are two reasons, I would say. Mm-hmm. I would say always use the common factor model except for one of two situations. One is, as you alluded to, the common factor model for whatever reason flames out on you, right? We got Mm -hmm. maximum likelihood. Sometimes you don't get converged solutions. Sometimes you get Haywood cases. These are loadings that are over one or residual variance that is less than zero. Mm -hmm. There are situations where you can't do a common factor model, and PCA is a great alternative. Mm -hmm. But there's another more important situation where you would use it. Let's say you're not really interested in the psychometric structure among your items. That you're not wondering, does negative affect resolve into depression and anxiety and what is the correlation between those two? But maybe you have 50 variables or you have 100 variables Mm -hmm. and maybe you're a propensity score analyst Mm. and you have 100 covariates (laughs) that you want to reduce to a small number of components that you view as just kind of a sledgehammer and you're going to estimate and remove the effects of these covariates. Mm -hmm. And PCA is brilliantly suited for that and is what hoteling advocated in the 1930s. And I find this very interesting in the move toward data science and machine learning and big data. There's actually a resurgence of principal components analysis to take a boatload of information and try to get a boatload minus K amount of information and use those composites. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If you go to any textbook or resource that claims to be about machine learning and you go chapter to chapter, you go, oh, that's cluster analysis. Oh, That's principal component analysis. Oh, (laughs) hey, look, discriminant function analysis. I haven't seen that for a while. So there's all these techniques that have been around for a long time, but now they've got a wrapper around them as machine learning. And we use terms like supervised and unsupervised and all of that. But it's a lot of the same stuff. Now, it's a lot of new stuff, too. But the idea of having these vast quantities of information and reducing it down to something that's manageable is ever present now, right, as we've got these tremendous volumes of data. And if you don't mind, I would like to maybe say a little bit about that kind of flavor for principal components analysis. And for me, one of the themes of it has to do with forensics. (laughs) I have an alibi. (laughs) (laughs) So there are a lot of questions that occur in a lot of fields that are very difficult to answer because of the sheer volume of characteristics. And principal components analysis helps 
Well, if you just Google principal components analysis, you're going to find it in all kinds of science fields, chemistry, biology, botany, the idea where you're trying to take lots of characteristics of things that you care about, but really distill it down to some smaller number of dimensions. In forensics, there's actually the sexual lubricant database that is built in part on principal components analysis. But I digress. So the use of principal components that I find most fascinating has to do with, I think, what has come to be called stylometry. And the idea of this is that when we write, we have certain characteristics that we tend to use, some knowingly and some unknowingly. So I have written with you. Do you know of any characteristics that you have as a writer, things that you tend to do, things you uh, tend to avoid? I'm incredibly pedantic. Uh-huh. I don't know if you can, like, numerically assess that. Um, Eleven. I, <laughs> I use lots of transition words like however, that is, as such. Mm-hmm. I also am a huge fan of the semicolon. <laughs> Yeah. So if we were trying to come up with characteristics of a writer, you know, some of the things that we might do are use of transitional words, uses of semicolon. So if I took things that were attributable to you that we knew you had written, uh, I might take these passages of, let's say, 500 words of things that are definitely attributable to you, not stuff that Bauer did that you just slapped your name on, but stuff that you had actually written. Ooh, um, I'm going to have <laughs> to send you like a high school essay then because <laughs> some small sample research, apparently. Um, <laughs> And I would figure out the characteristics that I'm interested in. And honestly, I don't know if they're relevant, but it might be out of blocks of 500 words, how many transitional words did you use? How many semicolons did you use? Or what proportion of sentences had semicolons? We might get into things that are thought to be involuntary. You know, it might be words like but or and or upon or these little connector words. So in the end, I have all of these characteristics. I mean, heck, I could come up with a hundred different characteristics of writing. And then what I could do after defining this massively dimensional way of characterizing your writing then I could go get something else that was written and I could try to see whether or not it falls in the scope of things that you have done. Well, how the heck do I do that? That's so many characteristics. And the answer is principal components analysis. And that's what stylometry, I think, has come to be, where we have all of these characteristics of writing and we could really just sit here and pull out a whole bunch of different measures But in the end, if we took all of those measures for a given author and did a principal components analysis on that, it would typically distill down to very, very few dimensions. Now, there would be a lot of dimensions that would just be noise. Maybe it's the fact that you're actually quite inconsistent in your use of transitional words, or you're quite inconsistent in your use of semicolons, even though you think that that's a thing that you do. But in the end, we would get these dimensions that characterize your writing. And now... I get a new piece of writing that you may have done, you may not have done, and I hold it up against these axes and I look to see whether or not it's even close to the things that you have done. And this kind of approach has been done for trying to identify authors of historical pieces, whether it's something like the Federalist Papers, where there was some concern over whether Madison had written some of them or Hamilton had written some. Alexander Hamilton. So trying to identify authors, 
In this case, principal components analysis takes all of those variables and distills it down to something manageable, which I think is insanely cool. And just as you said, in this time of big data, that's something that's incredibly useful to be able to do, where we say, yeah, we've got 10,000 variables, but in the end, those variables are exceedingly well captured by just a few dimensions. So I love the use of this kind of thing to be able to make sense of a space in this case, ultimately trying to identify whether or not you wrote something or you just put your name on something that someone else had written. I actually think you could have 100% identification with a single numerical measure. <laughs> I have a defiant and wildly inconsistent use of commas, almost to the point of being random. <laughs> So maybe mine isn't such a great example. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I agree. And part of it is the whole data science machine learning is a fascinating and exciting direction for our entire field. But in the spirit of the summer of love that we talked about, you know, history and our founding influences, one of the core foundations of that was in the 1930s of Harold Hotelling mm -hmm. with a sharp pencil and a sheet of paper laying out eigenvalues and eigenvectors. That's the cornerstone. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they use principal components to find the Bitcoin founder? <laughs> I love that. Yes, in the spirit of exactly the kind of thing that I was talking about, that stylometry thing, this one gets even more, I don't know if I want to say matrixy. So the NSA, which here in the U.S., National Security Agency, yep. they are, through only legal means, monitoring communications <laughs> <laughs> that, wait, why did the power just turn off in my house? <laughs> They monitor communications and all for positive purposes, no doubt. And what they did was the author of Bitcoin had had a ton of communications, emails, other kinds of blog posts, but the identity of the founder of Bitcoin was something that nobody knew. Well, if we have all of those posts from this person, then we can do exactly what I described. Take all of those posts that were known to be attributable to this person characterize it in terms of lots of different measures of style, do a principal component analysis. There was something like 50 of the most common words in 5,000 word chunks, and they got scores, did a PCA, and then, then, this is the scary part, they went through trillions of communications from a billion people out there in the world, and it came down to one person, Satoshi Nakamoto, was the person whose communications that were associated with his name matched perfectly onto this reduced space that was determined using principal components analysis. And that to me is just so crazy cool using Harold Hotelling from 1930s, right? And discovering this author identity. And keep that in mind next time you leave a bad Yelp review about the guacamole <laughs> at Margaret's Cantina. <laughs> Uh, the random commas. <laughs> They're never going to find me. So let's start heading for the exit. Mm -hmm. What are some big take-home points? Well, first of all, principal components analysis is spelled P-A-L. If you learn nothing from this episode, besides the Baba Black Sheep thing, principal components analysis is your pal. All right, that's thing one. Thing two, principal components analysis is not factor analysis, although there's a lot of alignment and it can help light the way to certain things. It's not exactly the same as factor analysis. 
Point number three, it is its own thing. It is its own technique for taking massive amounts of information and shrinking it down to a manageable number of dimensions. So all that futzing around in factor analysis where you do things like, oh my gosh, how many factors do I extract? What rule do I use? Principal Components doesn't care about that because Principal Components' goal isn't trying to get at some underlying true number of dimensions as we care about in factor analysis. The rest of the world, outside the social sciences for the most part, says all I want to do is take all this information and boil it down. Principal Components Analysis is your pal for doing that. You decide how many dimensions is meaningful for you. You decide how you want to characterize this, and you can use it as this reduced space, right? You've got this 100-dimensional croissant that you have reduced down to just a few dimensions, and you can use that to try to characterize whatever it is you're describing, to be able to identify elements, to be able to group individuals along those dimensions. It is a very, very potent technique that has had this beautiful resurgence. But... I know Dr. Michelle encourages me to use the word and. All that therapy out the window, man. (laughs) But I agree with every word you said. I think eigenvalues and eigenvectors are magical. Mm -hmm. And if you want to alienate yourself at a cocktail party is talk (laughs) about the spectral decomposition of a symmetric matrix through eigenvalues and eigenvectors. All right. That's what you're doing. It is magical. I love principal components analysis, and I think it is inappropriately maligned in our field. So one of my walkaway points is don't ever let somebody tell you you should not use that. Mm -hmm. It is much more an issue of for what purpose are you using that? There are instances where it is highly applicable, and there are other instances where it is less so. My two-bit opinion is if you are doing a more theoretically motivated question, if you're trying to understand the underlying factor structure that is associated with a set of items, if you want to study the psychometric properties of how items are related to factors, Mm -hmm. how is that within groups, between groups, all of this, I strongly recommend that you use the common factor model. Mm -hmm. Because even if nine times out of 10, a principal components and a common factor model would result in the same discussion section, why select the model that is not ideal for your underlying theoretical question? Sure. And if ML flames out in your face and you get Haywoods or, you know, for whatever reason, then PCA is certainly defensible. But use common factor model if it's more theory driven. And indeed, and we talked about this on the factor analysis episode from season one, if you're really motivated by strong theory, you should probably move to a confirmatory factor analysis. Absolutely. And make it a testable hypothesis. We're not going to throw the barn door open and let all items load on all factors. You'll take another shot of two fingers of whiskey and slam it on the saloon bar and say, I'm going to estimate these factor loadings, but I'm going to fix these other ones to zero because Karl Popper told me to. So those are my walkaway points. Principal components analysis is magical, but simply be thoughtful about how you use it and to what ends. Spider pig. Spider pig does whatever a spider pig does. Tell me that's not in your mind now. That is my gift to you, listeners. Spider pig. 
Spider pig. Baba black sheep. Oh, that was like, Mm-mm-mm. dude. <laughs> Baba black sheep. Who knew? Yep. Thank you very much, everybody, for uh, hanging with us. We really enjoyed this. We hope you found this of some use. Stay safe, and we will talk to you next week. All right, everybody. Take care. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts that you inexplicably stream when your kids are in your car. Johnny. And do please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. Or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get amazing non-pumpkin-spiced Quantitude merch at Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, dedicated to continuing Season 3 after having recently survived a maliciously motivated podcast recall election. How you like us now, this American life? Quantitude is brought to you by my mother, who, when learning about the topic of today's episode, drew upon her junior high school English teaching experiences in the 1960s and insisted we clarify the difference between principle and principle. Principle, P-L-E, is a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior. Principle, P-A-L, is first and foremost in order of importance. Principle components analysis is principle as in first and foremost. To help us remember this, recall that the school principal is your pal. We thus conclude with quotes from a few of our favorite principals. Happiest place on earth is a registered Disneyland copyright. Well, gentlemen, it's just a small school carnival. And it's heading for a great big lawsuit. You made a big mistake, Skinner. Well, so did you. You got an ex-Green Beret mad. <laughs> Copyright expired. I am very disappointed in you, young man. You should be ashamed of yourself. What could have possessed you to be so stupid? I'm sorry, Principal Victoria. Well, sorry isn't going to cut the cheese this time, mister. I'm afraid I'm going to have to suspend you from school. You mean I'm fired? Well, I guess that's the grown-up way to put it. Yes. So if you wouldn't mind excusing Sloan... I'd, uh, appreciate it. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, you, uh, you, you just produce a corpse and, uh, I'll release Sloan. I want to see this dead grandmother firsthand. It's all right, Grace. It's Ferris Bueller, little twerp. I'm gonna set a trap and let him fall right into it. Ferris Bueller's online, too. You seem to be laboring under the delusion that I'm going to... What was the phrase? Come quietly. Well, I can tell you this. I have no intention of going to Azkaban. You may not like him, Minister, but you can't deny Dumbledore's got style. This is most definitely not NPR.